to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of John, chapter 2, verse 22, as we follow along with today's lesson. So what Paul is teaching and what the Bible does teach is that The body isn't the real you. The body is just a tent in which you are living for a while. The real you is spirit. The body is God's gift to us and it's a marvelously designed instrument whereby my spirit can express itself. I'd have a hard time expressing myself to you tonight if it weren't for my body if I were just pure spirit. And in the same token, you'd have a hard time understanding what I was trying to express if you didn't have a body. So the bodies are the instruments by which we can tell what we are, what we feel, what we think. We relate through the medium of the body to each other. So as you relate to me what you are and what you feel, what You think, I begin to know you. I begin to understand you. I begin to appreciate you and admire you. I begin to love you. And we come into these meaningful, loving relationships through the instrument of the body as we relate to each other. Now, we we are always, it seems, so associating the body with the person that it's hard for us to to think of that person separate from the body. But in reality, the real me is spirit. This is just a tent. It's getting creaky, getting old, getting holes, and and falling apart, getting threadbare. And one of these days, I'm going to move out of this tent. Don't mourn. I'm going to be moving into a mansion, a building of God not made with hands that's eternal in the heavens. I appreciate the tent, I thank God for the marvelously designed body. I marvel at God's creative genius. But I'm looking forward to the building, that permanent dwelling place for my spirit. So death for the child of God is just moving out of the tent into the house or the mansion. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. It's the new body that he's gone to prepare for you. And one day, I'm going to move. Kay's going to send out change of address cards. (laughs) No longer living in the tent, now living in that building of God. Now, my prayer that we all move together. (laughs) Beloved, I show you a mystery. 
We're not going to all of us sleep, but we're all going to be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. The metamorphosis, that glorious change from the tent as we move into the house, for Jesus Christ is coming again. He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And I think that that time is very, very close at hand. And I wait with excited expectation for the glorious return of Jesus Christ and the moving out of the limitations of this tent into the house, the building of God not made with hands. So... Jesus is referring to his body as a temple. Not as a tent, but as a temple. And he said, if you destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. So he is talking about his death and resurrection. The ultimate sign of the truth and the fact that Jesus was the Messiah and is the chosen of God will be in the resurrection. The third day when he rises from the dead will be the confirmation, the sign, the ultimate sign. Now later on, Matthew chapter 12 tells us that the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus and they said, show us a sign. And Jesus said, a wicked and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So once again, the same sign, his death and resurrection. The resurrection from the dead the sign. Not understanding that Jesus was talking about his body, but thinking of it in a literal sense. You see, he had just cleansed the temple. So thinking that he's talking about that temple that he had just cleansed, gotten rid of the merchants, they said, we've been working on this thing for 46 years. And it, of course, was a magnificent building, close to 10 stories high, made of huge stones, covered with gold. And and it was just a magnificent, beautiful place. They would be working on it for another 20 years. It took 66 years to complete the building of that temple. And now Jesus said, destroy the temple in three days, I will raise it up. They thinking of that great temple of Herod said, you're going to raise it up in three days? Now, Mark tells us when Jesus was brought before the high priest and they were seeking to uh, get uh, witnesses against him. And many witnesses came. 
and made charges which could not be verified or confirmed, spurious charges. One of the witnesses said, I heard him say that if we destroy this temple that is made with hands, he will rebuild it in three days, a temple that's not made with hands. Uh, That was his interpretation of what Jesus had said here, still thinking at that time he's talking about that earthly temple of Herod. But Jesus, of course, was talking about his body. And the disciples didn't understand at that time. Now, as we go through John, you'll find that many times the disciples are sort of mystified by what Jesus said. I mean, they believed him and they were following, but he would make these statements and they'd, I'm sure, turn to each other and say, do you know what he's talking about? <laughs> and, and it wasn't until after his resurrection that things began to fall into place. They began to understand some of the predictions that he had made. And one interesting thing about prophecy, I don't think that any of us really fully understand prophecy until after it's been fulfilled. And then we can see clearly, uh, yes, this is what it meant. So when he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Paul the Apostle said, The gospel that I preach unto you, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scripture. So they did not understand the Scriptures that the Messiah would be despised and rejected, cut off, put to death. They didn't understand that until after his resurrection. And then after his resurrection, then they believed the scriptures that spoke of the Messiah's rejection and death. Then it all came together in their minds. Then they understood, and then they believed the scriptures and the words of Jesus, because now it has been fulfilled, and they they can see the fulfillment of it. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. So this, uh, he, he then began to work miracles. John doesn't record any of the miracles that Jesus did. But he began to no doubt heal the sick and, and uh, this was a such a great part of his ministry. And so when people saw the miracles, many of them believed in him. But he didn't believe in them. Uh, A faith that is predicated upon seeing miracles is not a faith that Jesus will commit himself to. Our faith can't be established in spectacularism. Our faith has to be established in the Word of God. And so they were watching the miracles of Jesus and and they trusted in Him, but He didn't trust in them. They committed themselves to Him, but He didn't commit Himself to them because their faith 
And their trust was predicated upon the spectacular, upon the miracles. That is not the kind of faith that Jesus puts his trust in in man. Oh, yes, I believed. I had a, 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 just a great experience. Oh, it was just so marvelous. I felt tingling all over my body, you know. Jesus doesn't commit himself to that kind of faith that believes because it had tingling sensations. Your faith cannot be established upon the miraculous. Your faith has to be established in the word of God. That's the only foundation, true foundation for faith is God's word. People testify of great feelings of joy and elation. And I'm not opposed to feelings. I believe in feelings. And I've had the feelings of joy and elation as a child of God. I've had the glorious peace that passes human understanding. I've had those moments where you just so sense the presence of God, you break out in in, in just weeping before the Lord. Or uh, I've had those experiences of just inexpressible joy. I've had the whole gamut of experiences, but my faith isn't based in any of the experiences that I've had. My faith is based in the solid Word of God because though I've had exalted kind of wonderful experiences, I've also had uh, times where I felt just miserable. And if my faith was in my feelings so great and glorious, oh, this is wonderful, then what about the day that I wake up and I feel miserable, out of sorts? So you see, our feelings are too variable to put your faith in feelings. It's got to be something more solid than that. And it's the Word of God upon which our faith is based and founded. That's the kind of faith that Jesus will commit to. Now with these who believed because they saw the miracles, many believed on him when they saw the miracles which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself to them. Actually, the the Greek words are the same. Uh, It's translated commit here, but it's the same word that uh, of the people who believed in Jesus. He didn't believe in them, or they committed uh, themselves to Jesus. He didn't commit to them or they trusted in Jesus, but he didn't trust in them. That is that faith premised upon the viewing of the spectacular. He didn't believe in them because he knew all men. He knew that it was a shallow faith. It was a faith that was predicated on just a a moment of excitement. He knew that it was a shallow faith. It was a faith that was predicated on just a man. He knew that it was a shallow faith. It was a faith that was predicated on just a, a moment of excitement. It was a shallow faith. It was a faith that was predicated on all men. He knew that it was a shallow faith. It was a faith that was knew all men. He knew that it was a shallow faith. It was a faith that was predicated. He knew that it was a shallow faith. It was a faith that was predicated on just. He knew that it was a shallow faith. It was a faith that was predicated on just a, a moment of excitement. It didn't have a strong foundation. And John tells us also that he didn't need that anyone should testify of man. 
for he knew what was in man. He didn't need for someone to say, now you watch out for that Judas Iscariot. He's sort of shady, you know. (laughs) He knew from the beginning who it was that would betray him. He didn't need someone to come along and, and, and give him information, inside information. He knew men. He knew what was in man. Now, in reality, chapter three is just a continuation. The, rule, the Jews had come and they'd said, what sign do you show us? And, and we have then Jesus giving them the sign, working the miracles, and many following, believing, because they saw the miracles. And now one of the leaders of the Jews in chapter 3 will come to Jesus. And he's going to ask more thoroughly about Jesus. He, he said, we know that you have come from God. Because no man can do the things that you are doing unless God is with him. So uh, we get now this uh, discussion and of course some of the most basic and foundational truths of salvation are listed and given to us here in John chapter 3. So a lot to study meditate, muse over. As you go through the third chapter of John, this is foundational. Get it down, pat, as that will be our next study, third chapter of John. Shall we turn in our Bibles to the third chapter of the gospel according to John, where he tells us there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Jews. So we know from this verse two things about him. A Pharisee, a ruler or one of the spiritual leaders. He was a member of the Sanhedrin and thus a ruler of the Jews as far as religious matters went. A little further down, Jesus said, are you a teacher? And so we know also that he was a teacher. And from the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John, we assume that he was a very wealthy man. Because at the burial of Jesus, he stepped forward with Joseph of Arimathea. And we are told that he brought myrrh and aloes of about a hundred pound weight. That would be extremely expensive. So he was no doubt also a wealthy man, a Pharisee, and Pharisees were men who had committed themselves to keeping the whole law. And they would make a vow before three others that they vowed to keep the whole law. There were about 6,000 who were of the Pharisaic sect. And uh, they were the ones who spent their lives, their whole lives, in endeavoring to keep 
the whole law. The same came to Jesus by night. There are some that have suggested cowardice, but I don't think so. I think that Jesus was so crowded during the day. There were multitudes that followed him. Multitudes that thronged about him. I think his coming at night was that he might have some private time with Jesus, away from the multitudes, that he might deal with Jesus more on a one-to-one basis. And he said unto Jesus, Rabbi, or teacher, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. So there is that acknowledgement of Jesus as coming from God. Having observed the miracles that Jesus was doing, he became convinced of the divine origin of Jesus. And Jesus said unto him, and and here's the thing, he, he, he responds to him with words that are sort of a mystery to open up a whole line of thought and understanding. And he said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, basically, I believe that Nicodemus, recognizing that Jesus had come from God, was looking for God's latest word to man. From the time of Malachi, some 400 years earlier, it was recognized that God had not spoken to his people. There was silence from heaven. And now Jesus comes on the scene, working miracles that attest that he must be from God. No man can do the things he is doing except through the power of God. God is with him. So I believe that basically he's coming and he's sort of seeking God's word for this hour, for this time. And Jesus begins by saying that unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. That is, you cannot understand it. You cannot really know it without being born again. Paul the Apostle in his first letter to the Corinthians says much the same thing. As Paul talks about how that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness unto him, and neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. There are things of God and the things of God that to the world are a mystery. They have absolutely no comprehension. It takes the enlightenment of our minds by the Holy Spirit to understand. 
And so Jesus is basically saying this to Nicodemus. There's got to be a spiritual birth. You've got to be born again if you're to understand or to see the things of the kingdom of God. This idea of being born again is something that we read throughout the New Testament. In a figure, Paul speaks of it as buried with Christ in the waters of baptism, but risen again in the newness of life. Peter said, thanks be unto God who has, and and it is begotten us again, but really who has borne us again, but that's not good English. But thanks be unto God who has begotten us again to this living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul said, if any man is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation or new creature. The old things are passed away and everything becomes new. There is a work of God's spirit within a person's life whereby that person comes into a totally new dimension of life, the dimension of the spirit. Now, originally, when God created man, he created him a threefold being, spirit, soul, body. Now, God is a superior trinity of father, son, spirit. Man is an inferior trinity of spirit, soul, and body. However, man, as he was created by God, spirit, soul, and body, The soul or the mind of man was controlled by the spirit which was uppermost. And thus the thoughts and the the mind of man were on the things of God because the spirit being uppermost. The body, it's there, it's necessary, but it was subject unto the spirit. Now, Paul tells us that there is a war that's going on between the the body or the flesh and the spirit. And these two are lusting against each other. And, of course, the whole warfare is on supremacy of your life. Who is going to rule or what is going to rule your life? The flesh or the spirit? The fleshly desires or the spiritual desires? What are you going to allow to rule in your life? Whatever is ruling in your life will control your mind, and thus you will have either the mind of the flesh or the mind of the spirit. It all depends on what is uppermost. Now, when God created man, the inferior trinity, spirit, soul, and body, God, the superior trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, it is in the realm of the spirit that man meets God, in the realm of the spirit that man knows God, the realm of the spirit where man fellowships with God. It's in the realm of the spirit where God and man touch. So that man with spirit uppermost lives in communion and fellowship with God. And that's the way it was in the Garden of Eden until the day that Adam disobeyed God as he followed after and allowed the desires of his flesh to master over the spirit. And as God said, in the day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And when Adam ate of the forbidden fruit, he died spiritually. The spirit died. 
and he became flipped. The flesh was now uppermost, the spirit dead, the awareness and consciousness of God broken. God came down to the garden to commune with Adam, and Adam hid himself from the presence of God, alienated from God because of the sin. So man born from Adam, the natural man, is body and mind, and now the mind controlled by the body appetites. And thus Jesus sort of describes that life as a person just interested primarily in the things of the flesh, what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're going to wear. Those are the things that occupy a person's mind. The things of the flesh. Now, the mind of the flesh is alienated from God. It cannot know God. It's at enmity with God. It cannot know or understand the things of God. And so in order for man to be restored into fellowship with God, in order for man to have an understanding of the things of the kingdom of God, there's got to be the rebirth of man's spirit. He's got to be born again. And so here comes Nicodemus, the natural man, looking for the things of God, the word of God. God who has been silent. What's God's word now? And Jesus said, unless you are born again, you can't see it. You can't comprehend it. And so here he is, in a fleshly governed body, fleshly mind, trying to comprehend the things of the Spirit. And Jesus said, it just doesn't happen. You've got to be born again if you're going to comprehend or understand the things of the Spirit. So Nicodemus, because this is sort of a mysterious kind of a statement by Jesus, seeks clarification. And he asked, how can a man be born again when he is old? And, and he shows the difficulty of it. Can he enter the second time in his mother's womb and be born? Naturally not. So, so how, how, can, how can a man be born again? And so Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, first was to see, now is to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven is where God rules. And thus, if God rules in your life, you have entered into the kingdom of heaven. Wherever God rules, that's the kingdom of heaven. But you can't enter into it, Jesus said, unless you've been born of the water and of the Spirit. Now, what does Jesus mean by born of the water? Two possible interpretations. The one is water baptism. We know that water baptism does symbolize the death of the old life. As Paul said, as many as you as were baptized were buried with Christ. 
Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ is living in me. So the old life buried, the life of the flesh, we reckon it to be dead, and through the water baptism, buried with Christ. But even so, in the same likeness, we are risen in Christ as we come up out of the water. It's a symbolism of that new life risen together in Christ Jesus. So there are those who say that the water here represents the water baptism, whereby by this symbolism, I reckon the old life of the flesh to be dead and the new life of the spirit to be operative in me. The second interpretation is that water represents your fleshly birth. As we know that before a child is born, uh, that water sack by which it is surrounded and protected in the womb burst, and uh, there comes the water, uh, and then, of course, the birth of the child. And thus, they say that the water represents your fleshly birth, and you need to be twice born. You've been born once of the flesh, the water, and of course, that is necessary, But then the second birth is the birth of the Spirit. And so uh, you have the idea of of the two births. (laughs) And as someone said, you're born once, you die twice. Born twice, you die once. And uh, so uh, the uh, second birth being the spiritual birth. Now, In the next verse, Jesus said, For that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So in the context, it would appear that Jesus is talking about the fleshly birth and the spiritual birth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So uh, there are the two ideas, and... uh, You know, nobody can really be dogmatic. I I sort of lean toward the second myself because of the fact that he does contrast uh, the being born of the flesh and being born of the spirit in the very next verse. So, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Therefore, marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. Now that brings up the issue tonight that all of us must squarely face, and that is, have I been born again? Have I been born of the Spirit? And that should be of primary concern to every one of you. Because if you have not been born again, you have no comprehension of the things of the Spirit, and you have not entered into the kingdom of heaven. And you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven unless you have been born again. You cannot enter into that kingdom of God. So Jesus said, don't marvel when I said you must. That is, you must if you are to enter the kingdom of God. You must if you are to understand 
the things of the Spirit, you must be born again, born of the Spirit. And then Jesus sort of describes it. Now, it is interesting that uh, the word spirit in Hebrew is the word ruach, which is also the word for breath. And uh, it is the word for wind. Uh, In the Greek, the word pneuma pneuma is uh, the word for air or spirit. So here Jesus said the wind, the Hebrew ruach, blows where it listeth. And you hear the sound thereof, but you cannot tell from whence it comes or whether it goes. And so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. You can feel the effects of the wind, You can see the effects of the wind, but you can't see the wind. Now, it's foolish to try to deny the fact that the wind exists because I can't see it. I don't believe anything I can't see. Well, you can't see the wind. You do see the effects of the wind. You see the leaves blowing or the dust blowing or the leaves of the tree shaking. And you can feel the wind. So with the Spirit, you can feel the presence of God's Spirit. You can see the results of God's Spirit, though we don't see the Spirit Himself. Yet we know He is there. We feel His presence. We experience His power in our lives. And so is He that is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And so Nicodemus answered him and he said, how can these things be? Now this is a question that is asking for the process. By what process then can a man be born again? Recognizing uh, the difficulty of the concept, he now is asking Jesus How this comes to pass, how can these things be? And Jesus answers him, first of all, not directly, just sort of, I think, chiding him a bit. And he said unto him, Are you a master of Israel and you don't know these things? I'm talking to you of basic fundamental rudiments of the spiritual life. You're supposed to be leading people in the things of the Spirit, in the things of God. Are you a master in Israel? And yet you don't understand these basic fundamental rudiments of the spiritual life? He said, Verily, verily, I send to you, we speak that which we do know. And we testify of what we have seen. And you receive not our witness. Jesus is saying, look, I know what I'm talking about. I testify the things that I know about. And I am witnessing to you of that which I have seen. The spirit life. The spirit filled life. The spirit led life. 
And Jesus was led by the Spirit. He knew the life of the Spirit. He knew that life of fellowship with God. He was talking about his own personal experiences of this Spirit-dominated life, which is a life that is in fellowship with God. And he said, if I have told you of earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things, if I really get into the deeper spiritual matters? If you don't understand that two and two equals four, how are you ever going to do trigonometry? You know, I mean, I'm trying to talk to you about basic fundamental things and you, you don't comprehend those. You know, how can I take you deeper? Jesus said, and no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. So Jesus here is speaking now again of his divine origin, which Nicodemus recognized. We know that you are come from God. No man can do the things that you do except God is with him. So Jesus here affirms that he has come from heaven, knows the heavenly things. Now, <laughs> we're dealing with things on the earthly level. We're dealing with man, man whose spirit died because of sin, man who became alienated from God because of the death of the spirit. As in Isaiah 59, he said, God's hand is not short that he cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that he cannot hear, but your sins have separated you from God. So man who is alienated from God because of sin, which has killed the spirit, spiritual death. Now, Jesus said, I'm trying to talk to you on an earthly level, but you can't seem to grasp it. If I went into the things of heaven, now I've come down from heaven. If I try and tell you about that, you know, you'll be totally lost. Paul the apostle had a trip to heaven. He writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where he speaks about a man in Christ about 14 years ago and whether it was an in-body experience or out-of-the-body experience, Paul said, I really don't know, but I do know that I was caught up to the third heaven, the dwelling place of God. And there he said, I heard things which were so glorious it would be a crime to try to describe them in human language. And so Jesus is saying much the same thing. I've come down from heaven, but, you know, I'm trying to talk to you on an earthly level. You can't grasp that. Uh, you'd be totally lost if I, if I tried to talk to you about heavenly things. But now the question. Jesus isn't ignoring his question, just getting in a few side licks here. And um, now he comes to the question, the process of being born again. How can these things be? And Jesus said, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He takes him back to familiar ground. He is a teacher in Israel, a master. He knows very well the account in Numbers chapter 21 
of how when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they complained and murmured against God and against Moses, saying, they brought us out of Egypt that we might perish here in the wilderness. And we don't have any bread. And we're sick of this manna. And the anger of God was kindled against them for their murmuring. And God sent fiery serpents among the Israelites. And as they were bitten by these fiery serpents, they began to die by the scores. And they repented. And they came to Moses and they said, pray for us that we might be healed from this plague. Now, it is interesting to me that when Moses prayed unto the Lord, rather than God directly healing them, God made provision for their healing. And in the provision that God made for their healing, there was a responsibility given to them. And if they would fulfill that responsibility, then God would respond and heal. But they weren't just healed apart from their responsibility. And that to me was interesting. God said to Moses, make a fiery serpent. He made it out of brass. Put it on a pole in the middle of the camp. And it shall come to pass when a person has been bitten by one of these fiery serpents, if they will look at this serpent that is on the pole, they will live and not die. And so Moses made this serpent of brass and put it on the pole in the midst of the camp. And it came to pass that when a person was bitten, as they looked at that brass serpent on the pole, they were healed and did not die. A picture that is full of symbolism. And Jesus makes reference to it here in the response to the question, how to be born again. Brass in the scripture is always a symbol of God's judgment. The serpent is a symbol of sin. Being lifted up on the pole is the symbol of the cross. Jesus said, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And in another place, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me, signifying that he would die on a cross. So what God is setting up is a picture that brass serpent on the pole, you have been bitten by these fiery serpents. You are dying. You've been bitten by sin. And sin is destroying you. You're dying as a result of it. But God, if you will just obey God, look at the serpent on the pole and see that your sin has been judged, the brass serpent, the judgment of God against sin and see that your sins are judged, you won't die from the bite of this fiery serpent. And of course, it's very easy to bring the picture over to Jesus and see how the symbolism fits. Jesus on the cross took our sins. 
The Bible says, and God laid on him the iniquities of us all. And taking our sin on the cross, he also then received the judgment of God against sin. As Jesus died in our place, our sin was judged. And thus, as today, I look at the cross and I see Jesus dying there for me, I realize that God's judgment against my sin has been meted out against Jesus Christ who bore my sin. Thus my sins have been judged. I will no longer perish because of my sins. But by looking, I live. I have now eternal life by looking at Jesus. But I don't have it apart from looking in faith to Jesus Christ. So those that were bitten by the fiery serpents, they had a way of preserving life. All they had to look at was God's provision that he made for them. But they weren't just healed apart from looking in faith at God's provision that God had established there in the middle of the camp. Look and live. And so with you. Your sins are not forgiven automatically. You are not healed from that deadly malady of sin apart from by faith looking at the finished work of Jesus Christ and realizing that he bore the judgment of God against sin, against your sin. And that's how a person is born again. Looking in faith to Jesus Christ you're born again. Now, even as it's impossible to explain by what process just looking at a brass serpent on a pole could save you from dying, how can you explain that? There's no explanation for that. So there is really no explanation that we can give for how by just looking in faith at Jesus Christ we have everlasting life. But such is the case, though we can't explain the process. Interesting, just a little sidelight, and this is just thrown in. Um, this brass serpent that Moses put on the pole later became sort of an icon for the people and they made an idol out of it and they began to worship it in later years. During the reign of Hezekiah, he took this brass serpent that the people had started to worship and he broke it in pieces and he ground it into just powder and he called it Nehushtan, which means a thing of brass. This is not a god, he says. This is just a thing of brass, not to be worshipped. But you see, it was a reminder to the people of God's work in their past history. But whenever you begin to worship the relics 
that remind you of God's work in past history. It's a sign that you have lost an awful lot. You have lost the consciousness of the presence of God in your life today, and you're reaching back to try to find something that will stir some kind of spiritual warmth. Uh, You know, it's, it's like a person finding a piece of the old canvas tent we used to have and saying, oh, remember the good old tent days, you know. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the Gospel of John in our next broadcast. As Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the brass serpent, and we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order John 2 through 3 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Now may the work of God by His Holy Spirit be accomplished in your life this week as you grow in grace, in your walk and fellowship with Jesus, in your understanding of His love and His purpose for your life. May this be a special week for you of God's revelation of Himself to your own heart to the Word of God in a richer, fuller way, a week of real spiritual development, a time when the Holy Spirit opens up your understanding as we seek to follow Jesus Christ and commit our lives to serve Him. May God be with you, and may God bless you. In the wonderful name of Jesus. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Pastor Greg Laurie. Rarely does a man come along that literally changes a generation. But such a man came, and that man is here tonight, and his name is Chuck Smith. Yeah? Join Pastor Greg in an exclusive interview with Pastor Chuck. Listen to rarely heard stories and memories in Chuck's own words about the events that influenced him and how he, in turn, influenced so many. We have only one life and it'll soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. 
To order a copy of the special DVD with Greg Laurie and Chuck Smith, visit thewordfortoday.org or call 800-272-9673. Again, the number to call is 800-272-WORD.